In the first chapter of the book of Acts, Luke lays out for his audience, the most excellent Theophilus, Jesus's post-resurrection itinerary. He writes that Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus lingered here on earth. We do not know where he was staying during those 40 days. Neither do we know what he was doing. But we do have a handful of post-resurrection stories that the gospel writers preserved for us. The gospel, with, most, with the most of these stories, is the gospel of John. There are five post-resurrection interactions that John captures, and we are going to spend the next five weeks looking at one per week. And this week, we begin with Jesus's post-resurrection conversation with Mary Magdalene, recounted for us in John chapter 20. The entire story is told in just eight verses. And yet the amount of content that John is able to pack into these eight verses is seriously impressive. In eight verses, John gives us a lesson in Jesus's identity, Jesus's mission, and his method. And we'll look at them in that order. His mission, or his identity, his mission, and his method. And the first is Jesus's identity. This interaction with Mary Magdalene is the first of Jesus's post-resurrection conversations. She had arrived at the grave early, while it was still dark, Luke tells us, and immediately noticed something was wrong. The large boulder that functioned as a door to the grave had been rolled away so that the tomb was now open and empty. In a panic, she ran to tell the apostles about it, and Peter and John ran back to the gravesite with her. And at different speeds, they took stock of the scene. But then they left her and went back to their homes, leaving Mary alone. She was weeping outside of the tomb when, in her disbelief, she stooped to look inside the grave again. But this time she saw something new. Verse 12 says that she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And it's interesting that John should include this detail about the specific location of the angels. Wouldn't it have been sufficient to have merely said that they were sitting where the body of Jesus had lain? Why go on to say that one was at the foot and the other at the head? It's the sort of detail that conjures up images in the mind of anyone familiar with the description of the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25 where instructions for its design were given to the people of Israel. Now, if you don't know, the Ark of the Covenant was this box of, made of wood and overlaid with gold, and the people of Israel would carry this box around them by sliding long gold poles through loops that had been fastened to the bottom four corners of this box. Wherever they went, they took this box, this Ark, with them. And inside of the box were a handful of items significant to the life of Israel and the faithfulness of God. But on top of the box was a chair of some kind, a seat. They called it the mercy seat. 
And that is where God promised to sit. So that the overall effect of this box was an outward visual representation of what Jesus promises at the end of Matthew's gospel, that I will always be with you. Wherever you go, I will go with you. And indeed, they took God with them wherever they went. The Ark of the Covenant became synonymous with the presence of God, which is why Israel's enemies loved to steal the Ark of the Covenant, because they knew that Israel so closely associated God's presence with the Ark that to steal the Ark was to have, in effect, have stolen their God as well. And it was truly distressing for God's people. But one interesting detail about the Ark of the Covenant that we haven't mentioned is that on either side of this mercy seat where God had promised to sit were two golden angels. They faced each other, looking inward with their wings stretched out and almost touching as they covered the mercy seat. One angel was at one end and the other was at the other end and God was in the middle. It was exactly as John described in John 20, one angel at the foot and the other at the head, and God was in the middle. But the absence of anything in between the two angels in Jesus's grave was striking. John is, is playing with the expectations ingrained into the minds of ancient Jews in order to teach them, and consequently us, about the identity of Jesus. In between two angels is where God is found. But we came to the tomb looking for Jesus, to which John would respond, exactly. In him, you have found God in the flesh. Jesus is God. But if God is found between two angels, why wasn't he found between the angels that Easter morning? Because he is risen. And in Jesus, there is a drastic change in the way that humanity now relates to God. God used to be available only to a particular people and in a particular place. But in Jesus, God is now on the loose, as it were. No longer tied to a physical chair, but able to be with you wherever you are. You no longer have to go someplace to visit to him, visit with him. He comes to you to visit with you. In fact, after leaving this earth and ascending to the Father, Jesus sent his spirit to take up residence within us so that wherever we are, in the solitary confinement of our own homes even, wherever we are, there Jesus is as well. He's on the loose. God is with you, even now, to comfort you, to sustain you from day to day, to keep you in faith, but also to change you, to redeem you, and to draw you out of yourself so that you might be fulfilled in him alone. He desires to make you new. And this is his mission that is made clear in his conversation with Mary to make you and all of creation new again. Scholars often point out the, the many echoes between John's story of Jesus's post-resurrection conversation with Mary and the story of humanity's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Both take place in a garden, for instance. And then there's the interesting fact that Mary is twice called woman in John's gospel. 
John writes that neither Jesus nor the angels use her name when they initially address her. Not because they are being rude, but because the whole scene is intended to be an echo of Genesis, where the first woman could also be found in a garden. John capture this, captures this echo not to say that the rebellion in Genesis is happening again, but to say the opposite, that what happened in Genesis is being undone in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is redeeming humanity by reversing our story. In Genesis, humanity went from the joy of communing with God to the misery of death. But in Mary's experience, that Easter morning, we see humanity move from a tomb, the very symbol of death, into the joy of God's presence. Jesus merely whispered her name, and she was brought back to life in an instant. Her whole world suddenly brimming with hope in the presence of God. But it only took Jesus speaking a single word, just as God spoke creation into being in the first place. God is creating through Jesus again. He is creating a new and free humanity in the middle of this fading world. In Jesus, the guilty and imperfect are forgiven and set free to live in the joy of his enduring grace, even as the world around us falls apart. And in him, we are given hope that there is something waiting for us beyond this world that we know. He went from the joy of God's presence to the misery of death so that through faith in him, we might also be made victorious over death and enjoy the presence of God everywhere and at all times. He is reversing our story. He's making it new. And the presence of God has been transformed from a fearful thing into a comforting and joyful reality. I mean, look at the message that Jesus sent to the apostles through Mary in verse, verse 17. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Through faith in Jesus, humanity is adopted into the family of God. God becomes a father to the Christian. And as his children, they enjoy the unconditional love and interest that even an earthly father shows to his children. He fosters purity and holiness and righteousness in us so that we might find joy in living according to his design for humanity. You see, God isn't just interested in, in creation on some grand impersonal scale, but there is personal redemption to be found in God. He's interested in the lives of each and every one of his children, and Mary Magdalene is the perfect example. We are first introduced to Mary Magdalene in Luke 8, where we are told that she was possessed by seven demons. She was under the influence of some pretty dark and destructive forces when she encountered Jesus. And Jesus not only freed her from the influence of these demonic forces, but look at the heights to which he raises her in this resurrection story. Mary Magdalene, a woman, is the first person to preach the gospel in this world. The gospel is the vicarious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
And Mary was the first person Jesus sent into the world to preach the gospel in its fullness after his resurrection. Mary was an utterly radical and ridiculous choice because women had no legal standing at that time. Their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. And yet Jesus chose Mary Magdalene, a woman, and a woman with a checkered past, no less, to preach the gospel for the first time to a bunch of men. It certainly challenges the limitations we place on the participation of women in churches today, and it would have been absolute madness in the first century Greco-Roman world. It's not the sort of thing that would have remained in the gospel accounts if the apostles had made up the story of the resurrection in order to preserve their dignity and consolidate their power, as they are often accused of doing. Now, the apostles would only have preserved Mary's role in making the resurrection known because it actually happened. It's too embarrassing a fact to make up. But for Mary, it was an extreme expression of redemption. And it shows us that Jesus is interested in the personal redemption of his people. He's interested in taking you from your sketchy and embarrassing past and turning you into nothing less than his representative in this world. He has ascended to the Father and no longer walks amongst us. This is how he has chosen to continue his work in this world, through undeserving and surprising people, which brings us to Jesus' method. And when I say method, I'm talking about the way in which Jesus makes himself known. There are two occasions in this story where Jesus makes himself known. The first is when he makes himself known to Mary Magdalene. And the second is when he sends Mary to make his resurrection known to the apostles. And we're going to look at both of them quickly. The verse is Mary. How does he make himself known to Mary? It's really fascinating, actually, because... Jesus begins his act of revelation by asking Mary questions to which he already knows the answer. Why are you crying? Who is it you're seeking? Jesus obviously knows the answer to these questions. She's crying for him. She's looking for him. But Jesus asks her these questions regardless because he is helping Mary to articulate what it is that she wants. He asks her the questions for her sake so that she can hear herself realize that it's Jesus she wants. And once she arrives there, he says her name and shatters her desperation with the revelation that she's speaking to him, the one she cries for and the one she seeks. What do you really want? Is one of the most difficult questions for humanity to answer. Because we're, we're mysteries to our own selves. We don't understand our own minds, our own hearts. We're always in pursuit of something, but rarely ask why or what it is. And even when we think we know why, our reasons often ring empty. In our modern Western world, desire is enough of a reason to pursue whatever it is you want. Want and desire are believed to be self-justifying, but want and desire are never self-justifying. They are always reaching out for something that proves always beyond our earthly grasp. They are reaching out for Jesus. 
And Jesus uses the various circumstances of our lives to bring us to the point where we begin to truly seek the answer for the question, what do you want? And all of our desires, broken and twisted as they have become by the fall, can only find their fulfillment in him. And when we realize that, and as, and as we desperately beg for him, as Mary did that Easter morning, that is the moment that he speaks your name. And you are catapulted into joy because for the first time in your life, your desires have landed on something, someone who can actually satisfy them. Which is why Mary clung to Jesus. She must have wrapped her arms so tightly around him that Jesus must have feared he was going to die a second time. And in that moment, Jesus says something that is puzzling. He tells Mary not to cling to him, but to go and tell the apostles that he is alive. Don't cling to me, but go. This is how he made himself known to the apostles. And this is how he intends to make himself known to all the world. He takes individuals like Mary Magdalene, like you and me, and he redeems us. He satisfies our true desires. He fills us with overwhelming joy. And he says to us, don't keep me for yourself, but go. Go. There's always someone that God is drawing to himself by leading them to consider what it is that they actually want. And you have no idea who they are or where they are in God's process. It isn't your job to figure either of those out. Your job is simply to go and tell the world that you have met the risen Jesus and that he has fulfilled your every want and desire so that you are no longer aimlessly searching for satisfaction, but have finally found rest for your weary soul. But he's not yours to keep for yourself, to cling to. He sends you, unlikely and unexpected character that you are, into the world as his messenger of the gospel, telling the world that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.